Well, good morning. How are you doing, Keystone? Uh, You can open up to Ephesians 5 if you've got your Bibles with you. We've got two weeks left in Ephesians, uh, the series we've been doing for the past uh, eight weeks, I think it is. And uh, I'll I'll have this morning, then Joel will wrap us up next week in the end of Ephesians 6. Uh, I would guess everyone in here uh, has seen and played with this at some point. You might not be able to see it uh, if you're in the back or even if you're in front because it's really small. But it's Play-Doh. Uh, And if you are a parent or a grandparent, uh, you likely have some of this in your house somewhere for the kids who come to your house. Uh, And I think adults, at least maybe I'm just speaking for myself here, but I think this is uh, most adults have sort of like this love-hate relationship with Play-Doh, where Play-Doh's great because I know if I give it to a kid, uh, it will entertain them for a little bit. But I also know uh, if I give it to a kid that it is inevitably going to create a mess. Even this morning as I was pulling this out, uh, some got on my jeans. Uh, This one is like five different colors mixed together. And so, you know, there's just going to be pieces that you're vacuuming up probably for the next week in your carpet if you get out Play-Doh. And and I think a parent does this kind of mental calculation every time they go to give a child Play-Doh, asking, uh, is it worth the mess? Is it worth the mess? The same reality, I think, comes to our relationships. In 2006, uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane wrote a book titled Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And I think that's such a great title for a book on relationships because it captures that relationships can be really messy. And I don't think I have to convince you of that. Like, you don't have to live very long to realize, yeah, relationships make life more challenging, more difficult, more messy at times. And yet, you can skip over those pictures, Alex. I'm not going to do those this morning. And and yet, we also know that relationships can be one of the best things in our life, right? That, That some of the best moments in our life are in the context of relationships. Again, I don't think I need to convince you of that. Like, you don't have to live very long to realize that that is true. Relationships, a mess worth making. That could easily be Paul's title for Ephesians 5, verses 22 through chapter 6, verse 9, where he's talking about different relationships we have. He's giving us in these verses what would have been a common thing at his time, something known as a household code, meant to instruct people on how to live and conduct themselves within the relationships of their household. And yet Paul is putting a unique twist on it where the gospel ultimately shapes and informs every single one of these relationships. And what he's doing in in verses 5, 1 through 6, 9 is showing how this good news of the gospel is meant to impact and shape every single relationship we have with one another. In fact, that's our big idea for this morning. It's pretty straightforward. The gospel is meant to shape our relationships. But here's what I'm guessing. If you are a Christian and you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard that statement or something similar to it. And you hear it and you think, yeah, of course. But what should immediately follow up that statement is a question where we say, how? Like, how should the gospel shape our relationships? What, what impact is it meant to have 
on how we relate to our spouses, to our kids, to our coworkers, to our friends, and everyone else. And my hope this morning is, as we read through these verses and then look at them, to be able to highlight seven answers to that question. How should the gospel shape our relationships? So that if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Christ, which is probably many of you, that we might see and seek to live out the implications of the gospel for our day-to-day relationships. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, that you might see how this gospel or good news we believe about what Jesus has done for us is good news for all of life, every single part of it, including our relationships, and that you might desire that good news to be true for you as well. And so let me pray real quick, and then we'll read in Ephesians and answer that question, how should the gospel shape our relationships this morning? Father, we come to you. I pray that you would speak in power this morning for your glory and for are good. Right, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in Ephesians 5, chapter 20, or starting in Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. My my goal this morning is not to have us look at each of these relationships in turn, wife and husband, uh, parent and child, master and bondservant or slave, but rather to look at all that is said in this passage, how all that is said informs not just those relationships, but all of our relationships and how we're meant to live in those. Now, now this passage does have, I think, two things that often stick out at first reading or as we read through it. 
First, the idea that wives should submit to their husbands, and second, Paul's words to slaves and masters. We we talked about the the roles of men and women in marriage when we did a sermon earlier this year on marriage in Genesis, and so I'm not going to reference that too much, uh, but I put that in the notes. If you want to go back, it's called The Story of Marriage. I think we did it sometime in maybe April or May. And as far as Paul's words to slaves and masters, I'm going to follow what almost all other biblical interpreters do and and apply what he says here both to work relationships and our relationships as a whole. However, I think it's important for us to at least acknowledge that people look at Paul's words here or in other places and and object to the scriptures and say, see, the, the Bible doesn't care about slavery or even say the Bible endorses slavery. And I included two articles that I think are good in in reference to that objection in your notes that you can look at for farther study in does the Bible teach us? What was it? But I think it's also important just to note several things before we jump in this morning to answering that question about how does the gospel shape our relationship or how's it meant to. First, Paul is not endorsing slavery. And the Bible does not endorse slavery. Rather, Paul is simply speaking into the context of his day where there is a large portion of people who are enslaved. And we should also recognize the the context here. Slavery in the Roman Empire looked very different than what we think of in slavery as in the 1900s in America. That's not to say it was right in the Roman Empire, but we have to understand there's a different context there. And Paul's recognizing that likely a lot of the people he is writing to may find themselves in the position of slaves. It's estimated that up to one-third of the people in Ephesus were enslaved in some way at this point. So Paul's speaking into his cultural context. Second, and I think more importantly, what he's saying both here and ultimately in his letter to Philemon, you should read that one, it's really short, it's only 17 verses, to a person who owns a slave, is ultimately going to undermine slavery in the long run. Because what Paul is saying here is that slaves and masters are equals in Christ. And they have the same Lord and master who is Christ. And in the long run, that undermines slavery because slavery is built on the idea that one group of people is less valuable than another and so can be treated and demeaned in a way like that. Which gets into our first answer to this question we're going to pose this morning. How should the gospel shape our relationships? How is it meant to shape our relationships? First of all, gospel dignity. We are meant to see other people through the lens of the gospel. In every place, every culture, every time, every situation, we're prone to look at other people through certain lenses that elevate some as having more value and demean or lower others as having less value. It may be through a racial lens where race ends up determining value in some way. It may be through an age lens where age ends up determining value in some way. An economic lens where how much you make and how much stuff you have and the clothes you wear end up determining value in some way. It may be through an education lens where your education level ends up determining value in some way or through a gender lens, where one gender is valued over another, or any other number of lenses that we can look through to evaluate how valuable is someone, and so how should I treat them? Paul is showing us in this passage 
The gospel is meant to be the ultimate lens through which we view other people. That not only do we see people as created in the image of God, but we actually see people as those who Christ died for. And we see other Christians as those who Christ is living in. And so when I look at someone else, I see Christ in them. Paul even demonstrates this in writing. Notice he's not just writing to the people in his day who would have kind of been seen as the most valuable, the husbands, the fathers, the masters. No, he's talking to everyone. And he's not saying anyone has more value than another. He's addressing every single group. I mean, think about how incredible it would have been to be like a six-year-old kid in one of these churches hearing a letter from the Apostle Paul, and he's speaking to you. Paul's saying everyone's got the same value and worth and dignity, despite whatever role or position or place or race we might have. However, we also see that equality and dignity does not mean there's no difference in roles among people. This is where we get to the second way the gospel should shape our relationships. Gospel authority. Authority is a God-given means to love and serve others. In each of these sections, did you notice, Paul both addresses someone who is, in some sense, under the authority of someone else and someone who's in a position of authority. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, children to their parents, and employees to their managers or bosses. Not in the same way that looks different depending on the relationship, but you see he's addressing someone who's under some authority and someone who's in a position of authority. And we could expand this out across the New Testament to places where the New Testament calls us to submit to church leaders, calls us to submit to government leaders, and ultimately calls us to submit to God. Let's just be honest here. The idea of submitting to other people, we don't like it, right? Like it grinds against us. We don't want to submit to another authority because we want to be the authority. And yet we have to see that the gospel is meant to transform how we see and exercise authority in our relationships. That authority is actually a good thing that can be terribly abused. Yet, yes, authority has been, can be, and will be abused in many ways, but it's still a good thing. That doesn't mean authority itself is a bad thing, right? Think about fire can be used in really bad ways to burn down a house or to harm someone else, but that doesn't mean that we say fire itself is a bad thing and we should just get rid of all of it. In in the same way, authority can be used in really bad ways, but it doesn't mean we say, well, that's a bad thing. We should just get rid of it. There should be no authorities. The gospel teaches us that authority is actually a good thing because we're all meant to be under the authority of Christ who's under the authority of his father. And just as God puts Christ as head over the church, so also he puts certain humans in a position of authority over others. And so to reject all authority is ultimately to reject God, the one who is behind authority. Now caveat here, that does not mean we simply blindly follow anyone who's in authority. And when people call us to do something that's dishonoring or disobeying to God, we we find ways to still respect them while not ultimately following that guidance because of how we know we're ultimately called to submit to God. Which also means every single person in authority is accountable to him. And so we see in accordance with that, authority is meant to be exercised for the good of others. Everyone who is in a position of authority, 
which, by the way, is probably most of us in here, right? Like most of us are probably in some sense under authority in one area of our lives and in a position of authority in other areas. And every single person who has authority, or we could expand it and just say has influence over other people, is meant to use that in such a way like Christ uses his authority, where he lays down his life to love and serve us. Right? This applies to how we exercise our authority and how we exercise our influence. And we might ask, well, what, what does that look like? That looks like husbands who are daily willing to sacrifice their time, their energy, and their desires to love and serve their spouses rather than sitting on the couch. Like that looks like parents who wake up day by day and are willing to give up their energy, their money, their time, and at times their sanity to love and serve their kids. That, that looks like employers who are not simply thinking, how much money can I make? But actually, how can I serve and care for my employees who are under me? And that matters more than how much money or bottom line there is. It looks like friends who use their influence and position in a friend group to do what's best for others. It looks like the senior on a sports team who uses his position and influence to actually support and encourage the freshmen who are on that team rather than expecting them to do that for him or her. See, the gospel flips authority and influence on its head. It will have none of this idea that someone's in an authority so they can get other people to serve them and rather says, no, we get put in a position of authority so that we can lay down our lives to serve others, which gets to the, the next part, gospel motivation, that we're meant to live in our relationships to please God. The gospel should motivate us to live lives that are pleasing to God out of gratitude and worship for all he's done for us. Look, look at Romans 12.1. This is probably the most famous place we can find this, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, now with that in mind, notice how each command in this passage of how we relate to one another is actually grounded in our relationship to God. Just look at them. I think I have them up on the screen. 522, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master is yours. Paul cannot speak of how we relate to one another without ultimately grounding it in our relationship with God. Why? Because we're meant to relate to each other on the basis of our relationship with God. So we love, serve, honor, obey, and submit to one another as an act of love, serving, honoring, obeying, and submitting to our God. Now that's challenging because God will call us to do things in our relationship that we would rather not do. Like, Submit to someone else. Like, love someone else sacrificially. Like, children, obey your parents even when you're convinced they don't know what's best. Like, employees, work, for a manager, work hard for a manager or boss who doesn't really appreciate you. 
Right? Those are hard things to do. And while it's challenging to say that we're supposed to please God in our relationships, it's also freeing. Because it means we aren't enslaved to pleasing other people. Right? Like we don't have to go about our relationships day by day trying to perform in order to earn or keep the approval of other people. But rather we're free to be able to say, all right, I'm seeking to please God in this relationship. I'm trying to do that to the best of my ability and that's good enough whether someone else is pleased with it or not. That's really freeing in our relationships when we grasp that and can do that. Every single day in our relationships, we have an opportunity to display our love for God in how you love your spouse, in how you love your children, in how you go about your job, in how you treat your friends. It's not just about them. It's actually about displaying our love for God as we relate to them. We also have the opportunity to display the truth of who God is, gospel truth. Our relationships are meant to display the truth of who God is. To say that human marriage is a picture of the gospel or of Christ's relationship in the church, I don't think is breaking news to anyone in here. Like, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard Ephesians 5, you've been to a Christian wedding, you've probably heard Ephesians 5. But I wonder if we grasp the full implications of what that means. Like, that means God, because he's really wise, because he's God, designed our relationships in advance, including marriage, but not just marriage, all our relationships, to actually reveal the truth of what God is like. Think about that. That that means when you see a husband overflowing with joy at the sight of his wife, we should see how Christ overflows with joy at the sight of his people. When you see a husband who is just sacrificing day by day to pursue and love his wife, we should see how Christ loves and pursues and sacrifices for people. And it's not just spouses or marriages. Think about it. When you see fathers who provide for, protect, and rejoice in their children, we get a picture of the heavenly father who provides for us, who protects for us, and who rejoices in us. You see a really good father? That's a dim image of what God is like as our father. We see mothers who nourish their children and care about all their needs, aren't just giving them peanut butter and jelly every day like dad would. We see a picture of God who nourishes us and cares for all of our needs. And it's not just as parents, right? Like when we see bosses who seek to serve their employees, they give us a picture of a God who comes as a man and says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And when we see friends who laugh together, who spend time together, and who bear one another's burdens, we get a picture of Jesus who is the friend of sinners. In in all of our relationships, maybe you can think of it like this, in all of our relationships, we are a bit like a cover band. What do I mean by that? What does a cover band do? They play someone else's hit songs. But like, you don't go to listen to a cover band to hear them play their own songs. No, I don't care about those. You go to hear them play someone else's songs. 
and they pattern how they sing and what they play off of this greater band. And as they sing and play the songs, they give a picture or window into how great that band is. So too in our relationships, we're into pattern and relate to one another based off of how God relates to us. And as we do that, we actually give this small picture of what our God is like to anyone who is watching. And, and parents, this is especially true of us with our children. It's why it's so important to exercise loving authority over kids and to create a home that is loving and secure. Because you probably heard this before, but Tony Merida puts it this way. The first picture of God children receive is from their parents. They will get a sense of authority, love, and protection from their parents. As they see and treasure this example, it will inevitably point them away from the parents to the ultimate father. And here's the flip side of this. Please, let's get this. What we believe about God will ultimately come through in how we relate to one another. So, like, if I believe God is quick to anger, harsh, slow to express his love for us, not very gracious, and he's actually pretty distant, then that's how we'll relate to other people as well. And yet, if we believe the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, well, then that will come through in our relationships as well. See, what we believe about the gospel, and specifically the God who's revealed in the gospel, will then actually shape how we relate to one another. And get this. This is really important. Get this. That means if we want to be good parents, good spouses, good friends, good workers, good brothers, good sisters, good sons, good daughters, we don't ultimately turn to how-to books, although they may be helpful. Rather, we seek to grow in our knowledge of what God's like and be in all of him. And then get this, because this is just important. That means one of the best things we could do for our relationships is our own times of worship with God, both personally on our own, but also publicly as a church. Because the more we are worshiping him and in all of him, the more that's going to be how we relate to other people on the basis of who he is. We get fifth to gospel purpose that our relationships are for us, but they're not about us. All of our relationships are a gift from God. Do we need, I, I need to be reminded of that pretty often. I don't know if you do. Uh, m- maybe especially with young kids at times, but also just with other relationships. Like I need to be reminded almost every day, God, th- these relationships are a gift from you. It's really good. Thank you. They're, they're for us, but they're not about us. They're ultimately about him. God's purpose in our relationship is for us to point others to Christ. Every relationship you and I have is for us to be able to point others to Christ in that relationship. How do we do that? By our example, that we seek to reflect Christ, albeit very imperfectly, by praying for others and by caring about their spiritual well-being and by looking for opportunities to speak about God and Jesus in our homes and our lives. I I love what Daniel Akin says to parents, and I think it applies to really any relationship. He just simply says this. There's more than this, but he says this is the heading. Have fun and talk about Jesus a lot. Have fun and talk about Jesus a lot. Like, we can do that. It's, It's not complicated. It's really challenging, 
But it's not actually super complicated like we might make it sometimes in our minds. And God's purpose in our relationships is also to make us more like Christ. God's ultimate purpose in my life and your life, if you're a follower of Christ, is to conform us to the image of Christ. And how he does that, or one of the big ways he does that, one of the tools he uses, is all of our relationships that we have. Think for a moment with me. If you've got uh, bushes around your house, you probably had to trim them recently. Let's say you've got a a bush like that at your house, and you want to make it look like the second picture. What do you do? You get a head trimmer, right? Hopefully you have an electric or a gas one, and you're not using a hand trimmer. And you start to cut off the rough edges. And you start to take off the parts that are out of control. And slowly but surely, it looks like this other bush. Relationships in our lives are a little bit like God's hedge trimmer, where he uses them to slowly but surely conform us into the image of Christ. This means all the difficulties and challenges in our relationships are actually a gift from God because he's at work in them shaping us to be like Christ. And it also means the most insignificant small parts of every day, like a car ride with kids or a hectic dinner around the table or or a staff meeting on Monday morning are actually really significant moments because God is at work in those very inglorious moments to transform us into the glorious image of Christ. No moment in our relationships is wasted in God's hands. That's really good news, I think. Which leads then to six, gospel hope. Our hope for the future impacts how we live in our relationships in the present. Our hope is not that our relationships will be perfect and without trouble in this life. We do not hope for somehow a perfect spouse, perfect children, a perfect job in this life. It doesn't exist. Never will. Rather, our hope is that one day we will enjoy the reality that our relationships could only point to in this life. That ultimately, the shadows will be replaced by the substance. In other words, all that we tasted and longed for in our relationships in this life will one day be experienced in our relationship with God as he's the perfect spouse, the perfect father, the perfect master or lord, the perfect friend, anything else. And that means we don't have to expect the perfect spouse, kid, parent, job right now. And that means that the best moments in our relationships, we don't have to try to like hang on to them and make sure they don't pass away because the best is still yet to come. And it means that all the ways that we, are, that we miss out on relationships in this life, we know that one day we won't miss out when we're with God forever. This also means that as we're frustrated by our relationships, and when relationships are really difficult, painful, and messy, we cling to this hope. Relationships will one day be 100% mess-free. When marriage is hard, we cling to that hope. When parenting is hard, we cling to that hope. When work is hard, we cling to that hope. Or relationships with coworkers. When friendships are hard, we cling to that hope. And we keep going, seeking to love and serve the other people God has put in our life. 
knowing that the pain and hurt of our relationships will not last forever. We're a little bit like a runner in the midst of a race who experiences all sorts of pain at times, right? Like her legs hurt, her chest is burning, she's got a side stitch, and she's like, I don't know that I can keep going. But she keeps going. Why? Because she knows this pain won't last forever. There is a finish line, and when I get to that finish line, this pain will be gone. As Christians, we know in the midst of our relationships, whatever pains and hurts and difficulties we're experiencing won't last forever. So we keep going. We keep pressing on, knowing that one day God is going to present us to himself in splendor. And all our relationships will ultimately be perfect and pain-free. Things will get better, perhaps in this life, or perhaps never in this life, and maybe our relationships actually get harder at times in this life. But things will be more than better in eternity with God, and so we keep pressing on in that hope. And yet we know till that day our relationships are still messy, not just because of other people, but also because of us, which gets to the seventh and final thing, gospel necessity. Our relationships expose our need for more of God's mercy and grace. Relationships will expose sin in us, I think, unlike anything else in many ways. You want to know how selfish and self-centered you are? Get married. It worked for me, at least. I don't know if that worked for you. It sure worked for me. You want to know that you're actually far more self-selfish and impatient and self-centered than you have kids. Right? That one worked. You want to know how annoyed you can get with other people? Man, get a job and realize how quick you get annoyed with coworkers over small things. Right? You, 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 you want to know how impatient you can be and how prideful you can be? Have friends and realize you get really frustrated when things don't go your way and you're not the center of attention. Relationships just expose our sin across the board. But we find the same one who puts us in relationships that expose our sin is the one who died to sanctify and cleanse us. Or in other words, forgive us and make us holy. And so when in our relationships we find, wow, my sins, they are many. We run back to the cross and we find, but his mercy is more. And I needed his mercy more than I ever thought I did before in my life. And we also see that our relationships will just make us feel in over our head at times. That we struggle to obey God as we should, as spouses or parents or friends or co-workers or employees or whatever. That we recognize our own inability to change other people and even change ourselves. That we confront situations that seem too difficult for us to handle that we wrestle with feeling inadequate and insufficient. Like if we read through the passage we read this morning and we're like, yeah, I can do that, then we haven't read through it. There's no way. We desperately need God's grace. God will graciously make us feel in over our heads in our relationships so we see our, in, in our own inability and call out to him for grace. I remember when we moved uh, to our house, one of the first winters we were there, it was the last kind of big snowstorm we got. Uh, I can't remember if it was 2015, 2016, one of those years. 
Anyway, we got uh, upwards of almost two feet of snow. Well, our driveway where we're currently at is, is probably about 500 to 600 square feet. I have no idea if that's actually accurate, by the way. I'm not good with it, but like something like that. That's what you can picture. And all we had at that moment was one snow shovel. And so near the end of the snowstorm, I got our snow shovel and I went outside and started to shovel. And I spent like an hour out there shoveling, shoveling, shoveling. And I think I got maybe 30, first, or 30 square feet cleared. Like I got nowhere in even an hour. And I remember coming back inside and just thinking, there is no way I can do this. This is going to take forever. Like we're just going to have to be snowed in till this melts because there's no way. And then like two hours later, I look outside and I see these headlights outside. And it's our neighbor who had this small little tractor with a plow on at the time who's plowing our driveway. And I was never so thankful for neighbors before in my life. Like I never realized how much I needed neighbors until that moment, I think. Feeling in over my head made me realize my need and appreciation for the fact that there was a neighbor who would come and plow my driveway and do what it would have taken me at least 12 hours to do in a matter of 30 minutes. When we feel in over our head in relationships, when we feel like, I can't do this, I can't keep going, I don't know what to do in this relationship, those are really good moments because there are moments where we're reminded to call out to God for grace, to call out for more grace that he's already secured for us at the cross when Jesus died for us. Desperate for grace to endure difficulty. Grace to see God work in relationships in ways that we can't imagine or make happen our own. Grace to know how to respond to really difficult situations. Grace to be able to trust that God is at work in the mess even when maybe it's the mess that we've helped to cause. I'm going to guess that there's people here today who feel in over their head in some relationship, right? Who, who feel like, I don't know that I can keep going in this relationship. I don't know that I can keep doing what God's called me to do here. I'm tired. I'm worn down. I'm frustrated. I just don't know that I'm able to keep doing this. Or that there's relationships where, where you don't know what in the world God is doing. Like, what is he up to? It just seems like there's nothing good happening here. Or we're in your relationship and you're like, I, I don't know what to do anymore. I, I'm completely out of wisdom. I don't know what the next step is here. And you're left feeling like I'm just in over my head. I need grace. In fact, I just, just want you to stop and think for a moment. Just stop and think across the board in your relationships. When I ask the question, what relationship in your life do you need more of God's grace for right now? What's the one that jumps to mind for you? With a child, with a spouse, with a friend, with an employee or employer, with a coworker, what, what, with a mom, dad, with a sibling, what's the one that jumps to mind for you? Man, I need more of God's grace in that relationship in my life. And I want to wrap up this morning by just praying for that for us praying but believing that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things, including whatever grace we need for our relationships to honor him and worship him and love him as we love others. So let's pray together. 
Father, we recognize that our relationships we have are a gift from you. And yet we also recognize that because of sin, both others and our own relationships are really, really messy and difficult. They, they make us feel in over our head. They expose our sinfulness. They expose our weakness. They leave us struggling at times saying, I don't know what to do next here. God, we believe that you're the God who is able to lavish the riches of your grace and kindness in Christ Jesus on us. That you're going to do that for all eternity. But we also believe that you're able to pour out more grace on us right here and right now as we need it. And so I, I pray for all of us in this room, in what, whatever relationship we are struggling with, where we're struggling to reflect the truth of who you are as we relate to someone, or struggling to please you and obey you, or struggling to have hope and hold on and keep going, God, I pray that through your spirit, you'd give us the grace we need right now and tomorrow and the next day and the next day to be able to trust you and obey you in that relationship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.